0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Hope that you brought your Bibles with you. We will certainly do our best to need them and to get a lot out of that tonight. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It may have been 10 years. I think that's about right. It's something like that. I know the first time or two I came over, you all were in the old building. And uh, so it's been a pleasure to see you grow and to see you get farther and farther ahead in, in the community and allow yourselves to continue to be faithful to God. And I always appreciate that. I appreciate the eldership for allowing me to be here. I appreciate Bob slash the eldership, whomever it is, who uh, designs and sets up these summer series, these topics. Uh, I always enjoy that. that. Don't know if I've ever shared it with you before, but I don't actually take topic assignments. For about the last 10 years, if someone calls and says, well, you preach on this, this day, this time, I say, no, I'd rather not do that. I'll just take my liberty and use God's Word, and we'll find something when we get there. I like to do what I call, or the old guys call, preaching from the overflow. But Bob's topics, and again, maybe the elders had a lot to do with that, or more than I know, but the topics that you have assigned the last maybe 10 years have been intriguing enough to me that I always enjoy them. And some of them have been, for lack of better terms, rough. I think on last year I had uh, the anointing with oil and uh, that was a rough topic. It took me some time and this one did as well. But I mean, I I struggled preparing for that one mentally, getting ready for that uh, type of a topic. But this one has been absolutely a pleasure. When Bob called me and told me that, you know, pick a date and I picked it and he said, well, you've got self-sacrifice. I immediately went one direction, and I'll admit to you I've changed directions in the last several weeks if I've been looking at this. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you would, the book of Romans. You know exactly where we're going to be or where we're going at this point, Romans chapter 12. As you're kind of turning there, let me go ahead and give you, many of you picked up some of the outlines in the back. Uh, I wasn't able to supply you with pencils or pens, so hopefully you can find those if you want to use that. But I want to go ahead and give you what I would call the three marching points, the main headings here. Uh, Just in case we do not get through with it, at least you'll know uh, where we've been, and you'll certainly be able to know where we're going. And I think sometimes both of those things can be comforting, especially with a long-winded preacher like myself. Um, You might just want to know, well, we're about done. And so you maybe can see that. But the three major points I want you to head out there if you want to go ahead and fill that out is the way we're going to be addressing this study. And the first one there at the top starts out point number one. We're going to do our best to review the passages. We're going to review the passages. And, of course, there are several passages. There are more passages than we'll ever touch tonight, as a matter of fact, that have to do with self-sacrifice But nonetheless, the ones that we are selecting to use, there will be just a few of those. Uh, We're going to review those passages and just talk a little bit about them, what they're for, why they're appropriate and such. And if you want to put a word out beside that phrase, review the passages, I want you to put out there the word analyzation. Analyzation, because that's exactly what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to analyze those passages just briefly and take a moment and see what they're about, what's the general idea and how we can appropriate those things in our lives. So that's the first thing we'll do. You come down to the main heading again, point number two, a little farther down the page. We're going to do something a little bit different and carry it a little bit farther. We're going to try to relate the principles because although I enjoy a daily personal Bible study myself, Bible reading, I'm sure that you do as well. You know as well as I do that if someone just says, well, I read my Bible every day of the year, and they check those boxes, and maybe they can brag or say, well, I made it through the whole Bible in the whole year and such, that's great. That's, that's encouraging. That's wonderful. But unless someone would be willing in that case to apply those principles to self, they've not gone far enough. And so you can notice that we're going to take those things and do our best to relate those principles. Now, if you want to put a word out beside that, You can put the word application because that's exactly what we want to be able to do. We want to take the Word of God, not just in these texts, but in every text, and take time out and emotionally, mentally apply those things to our lives. So that's the first two right there, the analyzation and the application. Then the third place, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get to it eventually. I want to take you just a little bit farther than that, and I want you to realize the possibilities, to realize the possibilities. Because again, if you were maybe a daily Bible reader and you could, like we just mentioned, you could review some passages, that's great. If you could in turn relate those principles to yourselves, that would be wonderful. But the final step, I believe, for any Bible student, really, I didn't used to think this way, but as I've grown and learned, hopefully myself, I've discovered the final place that we need to get to Is that we need to realize those possibilities and that is the word if you want to put that last word out there acceptation that's to accept acceptation because that's what we have to do okay and that's the marching points that's three major points we're going to use tonight as you can see on your paper if you had them there are many many sub points underneath that but that is the way we're going to to approach, to look at this discussion this evening. Now, as a side note, just to tell you a little secret that not many people understand or know about me, those three points I gave you, those three words that all started with the letter A, that is the way I approach every Bible study that I have for myself, every Bible class that I prepare for, every sermon. I try to just ask myself those questions in the back of my mind. Are you willing to analyze? Are you willing in that case to apply? And are you willing to accept? And that's the way we look at Bible study. That's a great way to do it, at least for me. So that's the three things we're going to notice. So let's start out with the very first one there. I hope that you turn to Romans chapter 12. If you've already looked down at the page, you see exactly what's going on. You've heard this scripture being quoted many times. And it is probably the most well-known and primary scripture that you would think of when you think about self Sacrifice. So in the first place, let's notice what I would call here the command. The command, and it answers the question what? What is it required or commanded or asked, if any way you want to see that, of God to do? So Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writing here, of course, by inspiration. I'll be reading from the King James translation. He says, And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, let's just break that down just a little bit. And again, we're just kind of skimming over these. We're just moving through them because I think this is the primary passage. Again, when Bob called uh, for a moment there, I thought, Oh, this will be easy. I'll go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I preached uh, whole, whole days in meetings. I mean by that Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday morning worship, and, and evening worship, and never left these two verses. But in this case, this is a command. And there's several things that I draw out of it pretty much every time I look at it. Number one, and I'm kind of backing off just a little bit, this is the request. But think of this as a request as if, say, a father is giving to his children. You ever requested something of a child if you raised those up, teenagers even more especially than this, or even a friend or family member? A lot of times when you say, I want to request something of you, what you're really saying is this is the way it has to be. There are really no options. There's really no opinion that's thrown in there. All these things are matters of obligation. In this case, the language of the King James translation that comes from the Greek says, I beseech, literally there, I beg you, therefore, brethren. And again, the Apostle Paul being the penman of this, I've thought so many times, well, you know, I appreciate the love and concern that Paul had. I appreciate the fact that when Paul came to someone and had a request that he was making of them, that he was willing to approach that from a really humble position, to really approach that and and from a position of love and concern and compassion. And I really appreciate the fact that that Paul would pin these words in this way. But see, if you back up and you think about this and think this through, it's not just true for the book of Romans. It's true from everything from Genesis through the last verse as we would see it of Revelation. Everything that's on these pages, they're not just the words of the men who penned these things. These are actually the mind of God being expressed through inspiration through His breath. And so when the Apostle Paul pins the words here and says begin with, I beseech you therefore brethren, don't just picture the Apostle Paul on his knees begging and pleading and hoping for them. That's what the word means. But picture more so God, the God of heaven, our Father standing before us. And in some sense it's not that he bows to us in any way, but him begging and pleading and getting on his proverbial knees, not literally, and and saying to us, I I, I know this needs to be the case, and I, I desire this to be the case, and I need you to cooperate. I need you to give me your all in this. And that's the first phrase here of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. From that point on, you continue to quote or remind yourself of the verse heading. It says, and I beseech you therefore, brethren, the next phrase there, by the mercies of God... That ye present your bodies, here's our phrase, as a living sacrifice. What does it mean to sacrifice? And why is it that God requires of us that we would make a sacrifice to Him? Well. If you roll back in your minds throughout the Bible, backing up far before the New Testament recordings, you'll remember that as the Jews were coming about, when they were traveling really all that time, when they would call themselves the Jews or the Hebrew nation, they were required of God to offer to him sacrifices. Even before the law of Moses was recorded and the specifics of those things were laying out, God still, even Abraham before the, the time of Moses, he had offered up sacrifices to God. And over and over and over again, that was always the case, that God's people were willing to give something to Him. And so in this case, not to review at all and not to go in depth, but He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now you look at that last phrase of that, not only do you have in this mind the request You have in this means the reason, but you have the requirement of it. Because what Paul ends up saying through inspiration, the last phrase, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he makes this statement, that which is holy and acceptable to God. You see, many times, and you see this around us in the religious world, and I use quotations and I use that loosely, in the religious world we see so many people who say, well, you know, I'm giving myself up to God. I'll give God my everything, particularly when it comes to worship. Just for an example, some want to say, well, you know, every every time I I break the doors of that church building, I I sing those praises to God and I enjoy the worship that we offer. And a lot of times, uh, hopefully most times, that is appropriate, but we know that's not true. Oftentimes you've got people who are sitting back and they're actually just the audience or the spectators of the worship that's going on on a stage somewhere. Maybe it's a number of people who are scattered around and they're supposedly quote-unquote singing praises to God and as they do that they they get a little groove and they get a little jive and they start dancing And, and back up behind that not to say anything about this PowerPoint screen but they've got a huge screen up there with flashing lights and the mood is going but you see the people who are there who are witnessing that are actually not even participating in such, even if it were right. You see, when we offer a sacrifice to God, that sacrifice must be what God is willing to accept. I don't have an option. I don't have an option to say, well, God, I gave you my best on this day or on that. God is the judge of whether or not we've done so. And so we see here the command, that is we see what? we are to do. That was very brief. We've got to move on. I don't flip or flop much, but I want you to take your Bibles now. You're in Romans chapter 12. Go with the book of First Peter. When, when, Again, when Bob called me, when he assigned this particular topic to me, this is exactly where my mind went next. It went over to 1 Peter chapter 1, and looking at, if you want to go down your page there, I'm sorry, chapter 2, look down your page to about, about verse 5. Just listen for these phrases. We won't go very in-depth of this, but 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, here's what is being said by Peter, again inspired of God. He says this, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, the next word, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, very similar to Paul, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you've got the what to do, and that is the command that the Apostle Paul writes about. But then we have the Apostle Peter over here, and he gives us the commencement of such. Because after Paul commands us of such, Peter comes in that back door and says, Look, here is how and why that is done. Why do we offer up sacrifice? Again, because reflecting on the Old Testament, all those sacrifices that were offered, which in that case, according to the Hebrew's writer, were that of blood of bulls and goats, and it states specifically chapter 10, none of those things, any of those put together could not take away sin. But in every one of those cases, basically the way that worship went, I mean, Old Testament law of Moses worship went, is that I was able to come up and to give my offering to a priest or even more so farther than that, to the high priests, and they would in turn make those sacrifices on our behalf. And those people in the Old Testament, someone would say, well, they they made a sacrifice, they made an offering. They were the ones who went out and chose the lamb without blemish or whatever the appropriate sacrifice was. And they gave that, yes, in one sense they did. But when it came to the action of that giving, when it came to the full appropriation of that giving, that was done by someone else. And here we are. We're far removed from that time in the New Testament, living under the law of Christ today. And Peter points out there by inspiration in verse 5 that we are built up a spiritual house. We, as the body of Christ, we are the spiritual house. And therefore, we, as the body of Christ and the spiritual house, we are that holy priesthood ourselves. We are the one that offer the sacrifice. Now Paul told us that was to be a sacrifice of ourselves. Paul gave us that command. But Peter gives us the commencement of such and says you offer up that spiritual sacrifice. Now drop down to verse 9 for time's sake. We won't read on through that. But look at verse 9. He also adds to that, but ye are a chosen generation. Look at the next phrase. A royal priesthood. You see, again, just as stated in verse 5, we are now the priest. And so if the sacrifice is to be offered, we are the ones to offer the sacrifice. And really the blessing of God in the New Testament, uh, there are many others, but one of the blessings of God in the New Testament is that, yes, I do get to offer my own sacrifice. I do get to choose to an extent what that sacrifice is, so long as it's acceptable to God. I do get to decide that that sacrifice is offered. And there's no person that stands between me and God save Jesus himself that stands between me and prohibits or, or keeps that sacrifice from being offered. And so that, in a nutshell, is basically to review the passages. But you see as I looked at these passages and I again take away nothing from them but as I looked at them and as I prepared for this I kept saying to myself but how? We know what? We know why? But how do we do it? How do we give ourselves as living sacrifices? What would that be like if it were in literal picture? What if we had inspiration? And by the way, I'll just call this what it is. This is God's divine commentary. How do we look if we're giving ourselves over to God? How do we look when we're making the spiritual sacrifice? We move to the next place. You've already jotted down the heading there. Basically, it comes down to being able to relate those principles. So I want you to go with me to the book of Mark now. We're going to spend the majority of our time in this. I want you to go to the book of Mark. When you get there, go to Mark chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me tell you something about Mark chapter 14. We're going to be examining in just a moment verses 1 through 9. But Mark chapter 14, like many of the gospel accounts, has some wonderful, wonderful parallels. And I'm always blown away, and I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Arkansas the other night because I kept just coming back and studying this and studying this, and, and every time I'd look at this parallel or that parallel, I'd say, wow, why didn't we see that here, or, or why didn't the writer express that over here? And when you put all these details, I've, got a, I've actually got like a spreadsheet at home that's uh, you know, several pages, and all I did was take word by word and phrase by phrase, and wow, look what John reveals, look what Luke reveals, look what, in, in all of those accounts. So in Mark chapter 9, I didn't put you a place to write this, but in Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, the specific parallels to that are found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. So Matthew 26, 6 through 13. And yet another parallel to that, and this is the one that really was insightful, is found in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And in each of these accounts, we're about to read this one from Mark's account. Each of these accounts, the basic gist is Jesus is in a place. He's reclined at a table. He's eating, I guess you would call it supper with his friends. Preparing for the Passover, which is a, a really a part of this we'll have to discuss. But preparing for the Passover, eating a supper with his friends. And a woman comes in, unnamed here in Mark. And she gets down and anoints his head eventually putting the accounts together, and also his feet. And she does that with an extremely valuable ointment, known King James translation as spikenard, which basically means pure nard. We'll mention what that is in a moment. But then when that occurs, others in the room get aggravated and upset and they make the accusation. Look at this woman right here. Look what she's done. She has wasted all this valuable stuff and she's giving over to Jesus for no reason whatsoever. We could have taken and given that to the poor. Now that's the combination of all three accounts that I listed. Matthew's account, Mark's account, as well as John's account. Now, if you really do some digging, you'll find out in Luke chapter 7. Don't, you don't have to write this one down. If you do, write it toward the bottom of the page. In Luke chapter 7, there is an account that sounds strangely much like these. But you see the difference between these three gospel accounts and Luke's account. Luke tells us the woman who anointed him was a sinner. Well, I mean, we're all sinners, so that could still match up, right? But Luke also, in time frame of that, tells us when that happens and it's far removed from this. You see, Matthew's account, Mark's account, as well as John's account, every one of them happened basically right before Passover. And if you understand the timeline of Jesus in his life, basically happened within a number of hours, if not just a few days, of his ultimate death. So when you match the times up, Luke's account doesn't fit. So I think it's a different account. I think there's more than one occasion, probably much more than is recorded, where people come and they offer a sacrifice to God. They break a jar. They anoint his head, anoint his feet. Luke's account, Luke chapter 7, says the lady used her hair to do so. But these three are parallels. Matthew, Mark, and John. So let's begin the reading here. I'm going to break this down very carefully. We're just really establishing what I said. We're trying to relate the principles. We're trying to get the application here. So in the beginning right here, first thing you can notice is the period. And I already mentioned this. Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. And two days after the feast, or or it was two days was the feast of the Passover. So it was two days before that. Two days was the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Adding there in verse 2 it said, And they said, but they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. So that's the period. The period of time is right here just prior to the Passover. That's where this is. You can match those again. You continue the reading there in verse 3, we learned a little bit more. Actually, we learned several more things, starting off with a place. Verse 3 says, And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at meat, and there was a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. So what do we learn from verse 3? Again, I'm just, just hitting the tops of these, just highlighting these. First of all, we learned the place. It says specifically, Jesus, all three other, or all, both other accounts, all three, say he was in the house of Simon the leper. Now just back up and think about that. What is your life like if your reputation is such that everybody recognizes you as a leper? I mean, I'm sure at some point he was named Simon by his mother and or father, and now he's on, on in years, I don't know how old, couldn't guess, and he's known as Simon the leper. Well, there's a few things that are obvious. Number one, he's not experiencing leprosy in the moment. If he was, there wouldn't be a gathering in his house, you know. He must have already been separated from that by some point of time or some period of time, but he's still known as the leper. So we've got a person here, and I just want to establish, I'll only mention this. We've got a person here who ought to have, ought to have a great appreciation for Jesus. He should. Now, my disclaimer, my opinion, my opinion, you could call it a guess. I think the reason he's named here as he is, is because I believe this is one who Jesus healed. This is not a man who, like many of the Old Testament, just kind of got over it. You know, got well, got better, and they were instructed, you know, go as Jesus did some of the other lepers he encountered. You know, go, go, go get with a priest and, and let them check you out, and if they can approve that you've actually been, been cleared of this, then you come back into society. We have those accounts. I believe this man was among those not just among those ten, but at least at some point, maybe his appreciation is what it is. Maybe he's in the home of Simon the leper because Simon the leper knew who he was, had some grasp, some idea. That's the place. In the next place, notice the person. Again, other of the two parallel accounts of this, all three, express something to this extent. It mentioned there specifically, and when he sat at meat, verse 3 in the middle, there came a woman, underline that, put brackets around it, highlight it, however you like to do it. There came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment and spying Now, in this account here, what we know about this woman is she's a woman. We don't know much else. We don't find much else, and, and I scratch my head, and I say, well, who could this be? You know, why is she there, and what made her come in? What made her want to be a part of this? Well, at this point, I, I don't know. I don't really have any idea. I don't really have any insight as to who this is, but I know what her mind was like. I know how she felt about Jesus, because the place was the house of Simon the leper, but the person was called a woman basically of the town of Bethany. Now Jesus spent a lot of time in around Bethany. We're going to learn in other passages, and we know this already, that Jesus enjoyed many of his friends in and around Bethany. I'll name three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he's familiar with this. But he's here in the house of Simon the leper. This woman, it says, the latter phrase of verse 3, paid a great price. It says she had an alabaster box. Now alabaster... Uh, some translations don't even mention that part of it. I think this is accurate. However, some uh, accounts don't even mention that part. Alabaster, basically, this is my opinion. It, it's something like a marble. It's a piece of pottery. It's something like a marble. It's it's generally very thin to the point of almost being translucent. I would just imagine, and I just noticed these, if you look to these stained glass windows, the white panels in there right right in the middle that makes up the window look of it, probably about like that in, in texture and clarity. She comes in, she has an alabaster box, other translation, a flask, makes no difference. And it says about that and concerning the price that inside of that box she had a precious ointment. It goes on to tell us a little bit later in verse 5 that that ointment was so precious that it could have been, according to the suggestion here, it could have been sold for as much as 300 pence or denarii. Now we learn from just backing up into, into history, secular history and such, 300 denarii, 300 pence, you've heard something like this before in other passages, basically consisted of a day's wage. And if you just round that up and say, well, here's 300 days wages, just to rough that out, it's nearly about a year, near about a year's wage. And if you put that in their time and then their day, yeah, that would have been a penny roughly, a denarii, a pence a day. You bring that into modern times, you're bringing that upwards of 15 plus thousand dollars worth of ointment. Matter of fact, the math that I've done, and you see, it's hard to convert. You can't just say, well, a denarii equals a dollar or something like that. You can't do that because it says these are days' wages. So you may have one person that makes $25 a day and one that makes $50 and one that makes $100. So we really don't know. But you take the average income, just us old poor folks in the South, you're probably still looking at somewhere between fifteen dollars to $21,000 worth of employment. Now that price is great. It sounds extravagant in what it is, but you continue, continue to consider the south. It said again, this is a woman. This is not a man. This is not a person who in her day and her society was able to work and to labor and to go out and make a living for herself. These are people at the moment of time in which this is happening, the old law is still in effect. These women are not actually accepted by society to work. And if, they, if their husband dies, we learned this all the way back from the book of Ruth, if their husband dies, it is expected that a near kinsman will take her in and supply for her. Why? Because she can't supply for herself. So where she got this, I cannot tell. My disclaimer I do not know could not prove. But I would suggest to you maybe, just maybe, it was an inheritance. So consider the price. Consider what she was willing to offer. She offered this alabaster box. It says specifically she break it or it was broken. That means there's no putting it back. There's no recovering it. There's no stopping the flow. She begins to anoint his head and or it gets to the feet. Now someone says, well, you know, two of the accounts you mentioned say, say feet and one account says head. Who's right? I think she anointed his body. Where she started, I cannot tell. In tradition, it would have started from the head and gone down. And during the account, here she is. She's anointing his feet. She's down at his feet. She's doing these things. Agreeing it's that of great price. Number next, we not only have the place. We in turn have this this period this place. We have this person. We have this price. We also have prosecutors. We just over from verse 3 to verse 5. but Go back to verse 4. Look what happens here in the context. And there were some, I've underlined this by the way, Mark's account and there were some that had indignation. The word indignation literally means they were huffing and puffing. Actually the word, it comes all the way from the Hebrew to the Greek. It says they were snorting. This is a bull raking his foot, getting ready to charge. This is a wild animal who's about to lose control. And it says of these people, whomever they are at this point, that some there had indignation within themselves. And they said, why was this waste of ointment? You see, her prosecutors looked at her sacrifice, and if you'll look all the way back up the page, how I've titled this, Making Sense of a Selfless Sacrifice, because to these prosecutors, it made no sense. You know, that doesn't make good horse sense. Why would she throw out and waste 300 days' wages worth of precious ointment, nard, pure nard, which, by the way, was made from a leaf that was only found in the Himalayas, and so it would have been, have been an import for her to get it, very valuable. Very hard to access. Why is she throwing that out? Why is literally there she wasting this? And by the way, the Greek word for waste right here, that we're kind of scanning across right here, it it literally means why is she throwing this to hell, to damnation? (laughs) She's taking something so valuable, she's just casting it out. Well, she knew why. You keep up the reading there. These men said, verse 5, now this is not the prosecutor, is the prosecutor speaking, but this is their pronouncement. This is what they said. Jesus had sensed their indignation, for it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured, watch this, I've underlined this as well, against her. Now the word murmured means it, the word murmured is, is best described as it sounds. Murmur, 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 you see, murmur, murmur, mur, I do that enough, you'll say, just stop. I've had it. <laughs> you don't have to continue to express that. Yeah, right. And so that's, that's what they're saying. That's their pronouncement. Now, whether or not that was true, I have to just assume it was. I mean, it made inspired scripture. But their pronouncement was, this could have been sold for 300 pence. This could have been 300 days' wages. And this here could have been given to the poor. Are they right? Hmm. There's the potential there that they're, they're, they're right. But if they're not wholly right. They're not, when somebody takes down the clock while you're preaching, you appreciate a man like that. Thank you, Bob. Good, turn it around back. You're going to need it. Hope y'all brought a sandwich. But, but they may be right, but they're not wholly right. And I mean by that H-O-L-E right. Because these men are making this accusation. They're making this pronouncement on her, whether it be true or not, that she was not willing to make. They're seeing, some, they're seeing less in her. Viewing Jesus than she sees. Now we didn't mention all the people there. We'll continue to go into detail, but remember this is in the house of Simon the leper. Should have been appreciative. These men who were there, whomever they are, they were there. They're at least in the presence of Jesus. They've at least had the opportunity to recline at a meal with him. They should have been appreciative in that. We have this woman here at this point unnamed. She certainly found some appreciation that they had not found, and she ought to be commended for it. But keep going. In the next place, right behind their pronouncement, we see Jesus, in this sense at least, becoming her protection. We're still running those lines of peace. He's her protection. Because according to what's said there in verse 6, Jesus said, and Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She wrought a good work on me. Now I want you to look at that first phrase that came out of Jesus' mouth. Let her alone. You ever said that to anyone? You know, just let me alone. Let your sister alone. Stop that. We, we understand the sense of that. I, I know that we do. But in the Greek language, it backs this up. And I, I, I may get geeky or Greeky. Okay, Either geeky or Greeky. I may do both. The word that backs this up, and I don't understand this, so I wouldn't expect you to, but at least I've got it jotted in my margins. so I can tell you about it. The word that backs this up is in what's known as the aorist, active, imperative, second person plural. You say, whoa, boy, I made, that made my life right there. That's, I made, that's a notch up. Here's what it means. The aorist active means Jesus said it. Well, we got that out of the text. The next part of that, the imperative, means Jesus said it forcefully. He said, this has to happen. This is the must tense. In addition to that, reading in that second person plural, Jesus says, I'm the one saying it. You, the one, had better do it. And the plural means, all y'all better listen. Now, again, I can understand that as a parent. I, I go through that many times a day. I'll say, leave your sister alone. Well, I also want that sister to leave her alone. And if you want to mess with her a little bit, leave her alone then too. When Jesus uses the phrase that He does right here is recorded right here in verse six, and Jesus said, "Let her alone. Stop. Why trouble her? Why are you continuing to murmur? Why are you filled with indignation? I'm inserting a word that's not in any language. That's ridiculous. Because he tells of her. She had done what she could, verse 8. She has wrought a good work on me, verse 6. And that's what Jesus does. So we have the period, we have the place, we have the person, we have the prosecutors, we have the protector, but we also have a promise. Verse number 7 says, For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, that ye may do good. But me ye have not always, for she had done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body for the bearing. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever thing this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also she hath done and shall be spoken of, a, or of for a memorial of her. What do you mean, Lord? He says, she did good. She's wrought nothing but good on me. She has done what? We'll say she's here. She's done what she could. The language there says she's done what you wouldn't do. She's done what none of you are willing to do. How many were in the number, I'm not sure. I would estimate at least, and I'll explain later, 15. She's done what she could. What have you done? Are you anointing me with oil? Are you giving up the price of this? Are you willing to offer that? Now interestingly enough, I want you to look closely between verses 9 and 10. Between verses 9 and 10 and see what you don't see. You see no one challenging him. Nobody. Whomever these were. A moment or two ago, they were snorting and pawing at this woman. They were murmuring against her. The Lord taking accusation as well. Why? Because she's one of His children. They, they were doing that. Have you ever met anyone who would be so angry that they're what we call fighting mad? That they're right nose to nose in your face and screaming and hollering and you say, stop. How many often do they stop? But when God speaks, when God says, stop, They stopped. So what have we gotten to so far? We notice here in this sense the analyzation. We reviewed the passages. We're just to the point of coming to relate the principles, that application. And the application here is very simple. You can't cry against God's child without having God's wrath upon you. And also the application and the statement that Jesus said, she had done what she could. In the last place, this one will go much quicker than the middle, I promise. But in the last place, we take that review of the passages, the analyzation. We take that relating of the principles, the application, and we bring it to complete, fancy word for a month for boy, fruition. That means we get it done and we allow ourselves to realize the possibilities. You know, as I struggled through this text, and again, I went from Romans chapter 12, which was immediately when I said, I got this, I'll do this, this will be simple and easy, can't wait to get to Aniana. And I said, wait a minute, you can't leave out Peter's account, what Peter said about being, you know, pre-holy priesthood and, and making up spiritual sacrifice, you can't leave that out. And then I backed up and I kept asking, but how? How do we do it? How do we get to that place? And then I moved over finally. I said, well, wow, This is a, the light bulb just went off. Look at this account in Mark chapter 14, 1 through 9. Look at the beautiful sacrifice this woman makes. Look, she basically gave probably most likely everything she had access to. Not everything she had, but everything she had access to. She gave it to Jesus. What a sacrifice. But you see... Realizing the possibilities and coming to that place of acceptation is the moment we have to get to. That's the moment, which, for lack of better terms, where the Bible becomes not just a book, not just a real book, not just God's Word, but our way of living. Where I can take it and and say this I can make it second nature. Now, I know that's a worldly way of saying such, but it's an understandable I can make it second nature that this is how I live. This is what I do. Uh, I use a phrase sometimes, uh, oftentimes. You know, you've heard the phrase, been there, done that. Christianity's not been there, done that. Christianity has been there and doing that. Now, here's the truth. I scratched my head, I rubbed every every night, I'd go to you know, go to brush my teeth and get out of the shower or whatever, and I looked like I had a sunburn right there because I would spent time in this. And I wondered who you know, it's it's this woman. And look at these men, who who would act that way? I'll tell you the truth. The parallel passages, John's account especially. As well as Matthew's account, tell us several things. Number one, the people who are mentioned here, looking at the quote here, some had, verse 4 indignation, that was the disciples. (laughs) That's who did it. (laughs) Not just any man, not just some man, but these men. The woman, a woman, mentioned here in the context, According to John's account, John chapter 12, 1 through 8 again is where you find this. I think it's in verse 3 or 4 that says this specifically. It was Mary. It was Mary. And that's in the direct context of being in the house of Simon the leper. Should he be appreciative? Yes. (laughs) Of being in the midst of Jesus' own disciples, apostles, should they be appreciative? Yes. Yes. And of being Mary, should she be appreciative? Chapter 11 and verse 3. John chapter 11 verse 3. I'm telling you about the account of John 12 verses 1 to 9. John 11 and verse 3 says that it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Who would anoint Jesus? Now, this is actually predictive in the way it's laid out in Scripture. Who would be the one to anoint Jesus with the valuable price of spikenard, worthy of 300 days' wages? Does Mary have a reason to appreciate our Lord? John chapter 11 and 12. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am. It was her brother. Lazarus, which John, by the way, tells us was right there at the table sitting next to Jesus. It was her brother Lazarus in John 11 and verse 35 that Jesus spoke to and said, Lazarus, come forth. It was him that had been dead, according to the text prior to that, had been dead for four days. It was him who his disciples had questioned the first eight verses of John chapter 11 and said, You know, why are you you waiting around, Jesus? We don't get down there, he's going to die. Jesus said, Fine if he does. So let him die. I'm going to work the works of God through this. It was Mary and Martha there who were at the house, who who came to Jesus specifically, uh, Martha did in the beginning, who comes to Jesus and said, Look, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Where have you been, Jesus? Reading the account of John 11, Mary had kind of been hanging back. She was in the house. We get to this part of the account. Here are those who are present. We know for a fact Jesus was there. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was there. The easy assumption is Martha, the other sister of Lazarus, was there. We're in Simon the leper's house. Simon was there. John's account, the disciples were there. And all of those people had a reason to appreciate and a reason to sacrifice. But only Mary did. Just Mary. And when she did, she gave it her all. Tell you another fact Matthew's account and Mark's account. And John's account said they were two days prior to the Passover. You know, Mary knew something no one else understood. Mary knew they weren't waiting on Passover. He was there. Christ, who is our Passover, was there. And why did she show her appreciation toward the Passover? The man Jesus, why? Because she was one like anybody else who, like that account from Exodus, had been that one who had basically, not literally, but basically had placed the blood upon the doorpost and the lentils. She had been the one that the, the uh, accounting, the imputing of sin had been released just as those people of Israel were passed over in the dying of the firstborn of Egypt, they were passed over. God looked over. God took that, that angel and came over, the death angel we refer to. God had passed over. And we're here we have a woman. There's no way she's anointing his feet without she's down there with them. And she sees the Passover. And she gives it her all. Why? Because she wants to make her sacrifice. The context of Mark and Matthew and John said that Jesus stated, and we just read it here, she's anointing me for my burial. Who knew that? Knowledge and understanding and the wisdom that is the use of that knowledge, apparently nobody else. But she did. Now here we are far removed from that. And we know that. So what if God asks us, as He does, to, quote, present our bodies as a living sacrifice? What do we do with that? We do it. Does that include your all? Mm Mm-hmm. Does that include everything? Yeah. Does that mean I no longer have myself? Yes. Three things right here, I'll just name them. This text proves to us in realizing the possibilities that when we think about the person to commit this, this is Mary. And she in turn did these things for us. Number one, her sacrifice proved her selflessness. She wasn't looking out for herself. This could have been her life savings. This could have been everything she had. This could have been her future. She was selfless. And secondly to that, it also, her sacrifice promoted her Savior. Who better to lift up than God Himself? God in the body, our Savior, our Messiah. And then the sobering part. Her sacrifice provided our standard. Jim, why would you go to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 14, 1 to 9, to prove such a principle that was so simply stated in Romans 12 and verse 1 that you could have wrapped this whole thing in two minutes because we had to know how to do it. We had to see that example. Close your Bibles, not your minds. I'm mindful also of the words of the Apostle Paul. Now this record is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. Paul said, I am now ready to be offered. The Greek word spenda. It literally means I'm ready to pour myself out. In the context of history, supposedly secular-wise, Paul died a martyr's death as a beheadal, most likely in the Mamertine prison at Rome. Just suggestion, but possibly. And if he died a death like that, he stated in the closing words that he recorded to his son in the faith, Timothy, in the last letter he would pen, I'm now ready to be offered. I'll give my sacrifice. He said, the time that is literally the age of my departure is at hand. He adds in the next verse, verse 7, for I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Or I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Next verse, verse 8. Henceforth is laying up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me in that day, but not unto me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. When is the last time, or maybe the only time in our past, have we broke the jar for God? Have we given God my everything and my all. You see, Jesus didn't die for somebody. He didn't die for anybody. He died for everybody. And the commands that are written in Scripture and the commencement that it takes along with the commitment that it takes is required of us all. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God's, In some senses, the first thing you need to do, and I urge you to do it within the next minute, you come right now. You need to understand the Word of God and trust it. Believe it. Be willing to repent of your sins, whatever you may name them to be, but turn your life away from anything that has to do with you or anything that has to do with the world and put yourself fixed focused, hard-nosed toward Jesus. Be willing to confess His name. You know, she may not have verbalized that this evening in that time, but she did it, I promise you, before them all. She knew who He was. And be willing to be baptized. Now, baptism at this time was not essential for her. It had not been proclaimed as He had not even yet died on the cross. But in so many senses, as she washed the feet of Jesus, He had washed the blood of her and was preparing to cleanse her of all of her sins you're here this evening you're not a child of God, this is your opportunity. You say, I may have to, but you may not. Well, just give me up. No, you don't have it. No guarantees. More likely, you're more like I am on a Wednesday night, and you could say about yourself, well, I've done those things that have been listed, and, you know, I've been baptized, and my sins have been washed, and I've been added to the church. Wonderful. But if you're honest with yourself. There are days when you might claim you would break the jar, but there are so many days there's no way, no how. It's time to sacrifice. Take everything you've got in yourself and give it to God. Return it to its creator and lay your life down tonight. Pray to God, beg of God for forgiveness. Be willing to turn and say, God, from this day forward, I am the sacrifice. Why not do that? Why together we stand and as we sing.